This past weekend, my wife and I, we were in the New England area, uh, up in Boston, went through Plymouth a little bit. Lots and lots of history in that area. When you, you start thinking about all of the different people that you read about in your history books, men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, you know, when I rattle off those names, you, you recognize them as, as founding fathers, maybe as as presidents, but let me share with you one thing that you may not know about one of those men this evening. Thomas Jefferson, aside from being a president, a founding father, he also had a Bible. In fact, this is a picture of his Bible, but you'll notice his Bible was a little different than the one you probably have with you this evening. And the reason being, Thomas Jefferson had the habit of actually cutting out any verse that he didn't personally agree with. So, for instance, if he, he didn't like the concept of hell, so any verse that had to do with hell, he simply just cut it out. He didn't like the idea of God being a God of, of wrath or anger. So, again, every single time he'd read passages that, that didn't fit well with him, he'd just take out his little exacto knife, cut it out. My question to you this evening is, is it possible that we, in a metaphorical way, have done the exact same thing? Is it possible that there are passages in God's Word that get a little bit too close to our toes, and so either we ignore them, we overlook them, or we kind of mentally cut them out? If you've got your Bible, open it up to 1 John. We're going to spend some time there. 1 John chapter 2, take a look with me at verse 15. The Bible says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, let me point out right up front, this is not one of those passages that you need to go to a seminary school and spend four years to figure out. This is not one of those passages where you need to go back to the original Koine Greek and look at each word. In fact, let me just tell you what it means. He's saying, don't love the world. And yet, this is not one of those passages that we put on our walls, is it? This isn't one of those passages that we stitch into pillows because, quite honestly, this one probably gets a little too close to home. This evening, what I want us to do is I want us to, to look at and diagnose the cardiology of worldliness. And I use the word cardiology because at, at the root of it, it is a heart problem. It's been said that if you don't know the purpose for something, you are likely to abuse it. Now, think about that in terms of your family your marriage, your home. If you don't know the purpose of those things, sooner or later, you're probably going to abuse it. Dads, look at it this way. That's why we don't give our young children our tools, right? Because they don't know the purpose of those tools, and they're thinking, oh, this drill would make a great hammer. If you don't know the purpose, you're likely to abuse it. This evening, I want us to talk about the purpose of your home. 
In order to, to look at worldliness, let's start by defining it. Worldliness is a love of this fallen world and the things in it. It is loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. Now, right now, as you guys are sitting there, some of you are already kind of two steps ahead, and you're thinking, all right, what does this mean? That, that, that Are you saying I, I can't buy that new truck? Are you saying I shouldn't have a, a vacation home? Are you saying I shouldn't go watch a, a, an R-rated movie? You know, it's interesting to me, we all know those kinds of questions, right? But the real question is, do we honestly want an answer to some of those questions? Because again, at the root of it, it is a heart issue. If you look at the text, go back and look now at the next verse, verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. In other words, what John is doing here, he's enlarging on it, saying, worldliness, it's not about a truck. It's not about a vacation home or a particular movie or a particular name brand of clothing. He's saying at the end of the day, it's about the pride of life. It's about the lust of the flesh. It's about the lust of the eyes. It's about your heart. I tell people it's like this. It's not that you want something. That's not worldliness. In fact, I actually am trying to teach my children that if they really want something, you know what they need to learn how to do? Work for it. Hey, there's a new concept. The problem is when you want something too much. So much so that it actually interferes with your relationship with God. You say, I wouldn't interfere with my relationship with God. I'm at church every single Sunday. Folks, let me tell you what. There is a sense in America that we can be Christian and worldly at the same time. I don't find that in the Bible. In fact, I'm going to start this evening by simply giving you a mental test, okay? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about your most, your most worldly friend. Maybe it's a, an extended family member, somebody that you know, that you talk to on a, a regular occasion, who doesn't really do church. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to blindfold myself. I'm going to slide two pieces of paper across the table to you and to that person. And then I'm going to start asking you questions. Questions like, what TV shows do you like to watch? Name the last five movies that you've seen. How do you like to spend your time? What, what are some of your hobbies or your passions? How do you spend your money? What are your dreams, your goals? What, what is your internet activity like? And after you write down all of your answers, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have you slide both pieces of paper to the middle of the table. I'll take off the blindfold and simply ask, can I tell a difference? Can I tell a difference between your worldly friend and you? Because folks, let me point out to you, I know 
for our young people, they think, man, this world's got all this cool stuff. But at the end, it doesn't have anything to offer you. Look at the next verse in that passage. Verse 17 says this, The world is passing away, the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The the best analogy I've ever heard in this particular area, and I think it's one that, that hopefully you've heard, if not, I hope you'll remember it from this day forward, is this. You are a boat. The world is like the water. Now, your object is to be in the water, but not let the water inside you. Because what happens to a boat when too much of the world gets inside of you? Folks, it is no longer useful for the purpose of which it was made. Now, as you look at that image right there, that is what happens to Christians who basically get back into the world. Now, there's some of you in this room, about every two, three months, you know what you do? You kind of stop, you take inventory. In fact, some of you are doing it right now as your children are preparing to go back to school. You're kind of looking back and going, okay, you know, what DVDs do we have in the house? What video games? And you basically bail out some water. There's others of you in this room, if you were totally honest with me, you know you've got water in your boat and you stopped bailing a long time ago. Basically, you, you realize that your boat has become full of the world. Take a look, Amos chapter 6, verse 1. The Bible says this, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Woe to those who are at ease, who, who stop bailing. Because folks, what I need you to understand, every single moment of every day, you're making choices. You are waking up deciding, am I going to to try to be more holy as he is holy, or am I just going to go along and get along? Am I just going to do what the rest of the world does? Take a look at James chapter 4. If you got your Bibles, I encourage you to open up there. Those of you who write in your Bibles, let me encourage you. Draw an arrow, circle, underline, highlight verse 4. Look at what he says. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? He says you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. He says you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Look at what he calls us. He says, adulterers, adulteresses. In other words, you're cheating on your first love. He then goes on to say this. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Look at that passage, folks. If you're friends with the world, you're an enemy with God. I'm here to tell you tonight, there is little that is more dangerous than raising up your children to be worldly. Because ultimately, according to the Bible, 
What you're doing is you're raising up enemies of God. And folks, that's a pretty serious charge. Do, do we have an example of what I'm talking about? Like, do, do we have a biblical example of somebody who was worldly? How about this guy? How about Demas? Some of you remember Paul mentioning Demas in his letters. Demas, in his earlier life, was just like many of you in this room. He was on fire for the Lord. He wanted the church to grow. He was evangelistic. He went on mission trips. And in fact, Paul mentioned him a couple of times. You look in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. We find him again in the book of Philemon. So here is this guy. He is excited about the gospel. He's wanting people to learn. And then lo and behold, we turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at what it says starting in verse 9. Paul says, be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Demas, he went into the world. Now, let me tell you guys how I think a lot of times. When I read something like that, I immediately kind of inject my own life into that. And I think to myself, was he married? Did he have children? Did, did, did Demas take his whole family away from, from being an evangelistic, on fire for the Lord, out into the world? And let me point out to you, this wasn't one of those literally wake up one day, flick a light switch kind of decisions. Now, instead what happened is Demas started letting water into his boat and he never bailed it out. Demas went into the world. I think a lot of people, when I talk about worldliness, they immediately think, well, you know, this is one of those lessons for everybody who's under 30. Because they, they, they struggle with all that temptation. But let me point out to you, Satan knows what every single person in this room really wants, doesn't he? And every single person young and old alike, need to understand every single day the world is after your affections. Saying, look, you need a new one of these. You, you need a better one of these. I love, you know, some of these rich, expensive car commercials. You need to drive a so-and-so because you deserve it. I'm like, you know, really what they ought to say is, you deserve the fires of hell but thankfully, Jesus came along because that's what we really deserve. Of course, that probably wouldn't sell many of their cars, but you see the picture? Folks, if you really want to, to help yourself and your family, instead of focusing on the world, we've got to focus on the cross. Listen to what Paul wrote when he wrote to the, the church at Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he said this, but, th but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What, what are you saying, Paul? I'm saying all that stuff out there, now that I'm a new creature, 
that doesn't hold the same desire from me. Because think about it for just a moment. How can we love the very things that Christ was crucified for? Can you love the, the nails that hammered him home? Or can you, can you bless the hammer that anchored those nails in? Can you kiss the hands that put that crown of thorns on his head? Because ultimately, here's, here's the deal. When you say that you are a follower of Christ, and yet you are living in the world, that's what you're doing. I think sometimes we forget that we have been bought with a price. Everybody in this room who is a faithful Christian, you've been bought with a price. And that price was the blood of Calvary. As a result, everything that we do, think, say should be analyzed. We talked last week about our worldview. It should be analyzed through the lens of God's Word. So here's what I'm going to do this evening. I'm going to, I'm going to give you four areas, four areas in which worldliness can infect our Christian homes. And let me point out right up front, we can easily spend an hour in each area, okay? I'm not going to. I see some of you are like, seriously? Not going to spend that. I will point out I'm going to spend the longest amount of time on the first one because I think we're struggling the most here, and that's with media. Do we have a problem with media today? Take the average day, right? You wake up about 6 o'clock, 6.30. Your alarm clock goes off. Some of you in this room, you wake up, and literally before you roll out of bed, you've already reached over, grabbed your phone, and you started checking your emails. You started checking maybe some social media sites. You get up, you go through your morning routine, maybe you've got the radio playing, you, you grab a, a quick bite of breakfast. Those of you who are over the age of 50, you sit down with the newspaper. Those of you who are under the age of 50, a newspaper is something that's like paper, it's like... You get in your car, you drive to work, you're listening to a, a shock jock or some talk radio host. You get to the office, you, you start your computer up, you start going through work emails, personal emails. About 10.30, you take a break, you go off to the coffee room, there's a, a flat screen TV there, and it's either got maybe the 24-hour the news channel going, maybe it's got ESPN. Lunchtime rolls around, you, you take your lunch somewhere, and what have you got? You got your phone, you're texting your family, you're your friends, somewhere around 4 o'clock, you finally get off work, you realize, hey, I got, I got to go pick up the kids, they were band practice, you drive by, it takes them all of approximately 30 seconds to get in the car and to have that video screen drop down out of the ceiling, and they're watching the latest Pixar film. You get home, you pick up a remote control that's got 387 channels most of which are rubbish, right? Now, you do stop and actually eat with your family, but as soon as that's over, you go back to the, the living room, you watch the latest reality show, and sometime around 10, 10.30, you drift off to sleep listening to the evening news. you have any idea how much 
media you ingested that day? Most of it, by the way, was coming at it from an ungodly worldview. Ken Myers wrote a book several years ago. I'm going to give him credit for having one of the most unique titles to his book. The title of it was, All of God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes. He was talking about how in the past, Christianity actually affected lots of people. Listen to what he says. Not all citizens of Christendom were Christians, but all understood it. All were influenced by its teaching. He said, I can think of no entity today capable of such a culturally unifying role except television. He said, in television, we live and move and have our being. Kent Myers, or Ken Hughes, he wrote a book called Set Apart, Calling a a Worldly Church to a Godly Life. Listen to what he says. Today, the all-pervasive glow of the television set is the single most potent influence and control in Western culture. He said, television has greater power over our lives of most Americans than any educational system, government, or church. Now, I would update his quote to say, television and the internet have more control than all of this stuff. And yet, folks, here's the reality. A lot of folks today walk in, will turn on something, and their concept is, well, you know, as long as it doesn't have cuss words in it, it's okay. But let me ask you, are you even evaluating what you're putting in right up here? I use the example of pretty woman just because I know in this room, if I were to ask, how many of you saw pretty woman? Don't show me your hands, okay? I don't want to know. But a lot of you saw it. Do you realize by the end of that movie, here's what you were doing. You were rooting for a prostitute to hook up with somebody she wasn't married to. She wasn't married to Richard Gere. And yet by the end of the movie, what you were thinking, oh, please let them get together. Hollywood can dangle sin and make it look great. And yet if we aren't evaluating what we're putting into our minds, it is affecting you. In fact, think about this. $215 billion was spent just in advertising. If my children were sitting here, they would tell you, Dad is not anti-TV. I'm not telling you, go out and throw your TV out the window. Although, you know, that, that might not be a bad idea. My, my kids would say, hey, you know, every once in a while, Dad does like to watch something. In fact, my oldest son and I, we, we enjoy watching some sports together. Usually we'll, we'll watch it with a DVR because, let's be honest, even commercials are getting pretty nasty. My oldest son, though, he, he, we were watching, we were fast-forwarding one day, and he goes, you know, Dad, commercials don't have any effect on me. I just laughed at him. I said, oh, really? I said, you think they spend all that money and it has no effect on me? He kind of looked at me and goes, no, it doesn't affect me. So I said, okay, we're going to do a little test. And I started humming different commercial songs or themes. I said, tell me if you can name the product. He named every single one of them. I said, Will, they've got you and you don't even know they've got you. All because they're quietly influencing each and every one of us. 
what we have to understand is glorifying God, becoming more holy is an intentional pursuit. It's something that everybody in this room has to wake up and go, you know what, today I'm going to be more holy than I was yesterday. Today, I'm going to to watch less of that rubbish. I'm going to turn off those shows that glorify homosexuality. I'm going to turn off some of the reality shows that have got everybody dressed in immodest clothes. I'm going to turn off some of those songs. In his book, he continues, Ken Meyer says this, I believe the challenge of living with popular culture may well be as serious for modern Christians as persecution and plagues were for the saints of earlier centuries. He said, enemies that come loudly and visibly are usually much easier to fight than those that are undetectable. He is right. Because if I came to your house tonight at 9 o'clock and I banged on the door and I said, hey, I'm Satan, let me in. You wouldn't let me in. But you would pick up a remote control and turn on some of the shows. Let me give you three areas to think about when it comes to media. The the next three slides, I realize there's a lot of text on them. I'll give them to the guys in the back or Josh or somebody. If you want copies of them, they can certainly get them to you. The first area when it comes to media that we got to think about is time. Take a look. Am I skipping or delaying something important in order to watch this now? What are my other social or entertainment options besides watching television or going out to see a movie. Number three, how much time have I already spent on media today? Number four, how much time have I spent surfing the internet or on social media today? Number five, in the last week, how much time have I spent on spiritual growth, building relationships, or serving at church compared to time spent consuming media? And last, after investing the time to view this, will I look back on it as time well spent? So the first area that I want you to consider when you personally are thinking about worldliness, when you're thinking about your home, when you're thinking about media, is time. Number two, what about the heart? Take a look. Number one, why do I want to watch this program or film? What do I find entertaining about it? Number two, am I seeking to escape from something that I should be facing by watching this? Am I seeking comfort or relief that can only be found in God? Number three, what sinful temptations will this program or film present? Number four, do I secretly want to view something in this that is sinful? Number five, am I watching this because I'm bored or lazy? And if so, what is that saying about us, church? Last but not least, am I watching this simply because other people are? Am I just trying to be relevant and fit in? Young people, listen to me. Just because your classmates are watching vile, rubbish sitcoms doesn't mean you have to. So time is one element. The heart is one element. And last, what about content? What worldview or philosophy of life does this program or film present? What is the view of man? What is the view of sin? Number two, what does this program or film glamorize? What is valued or considered important? I mentioned Pretty Woman. By the end of that thing, it was glamorizing two people who were not married getting together. 
Is sin shown as having a negative consequence? What's the sexual content? Would seeing this help me better understand God's world? Will I benefit in any way from watching this or visiting this website? Is the language in this film glorifying to God? Ultimately, what we've got to do is we've got to start thinking about how am I using my time? How is it affecting my heart? And what is the real content in this media? Because ultimately, if we don't, here's what's going to happen. Your conscience will be seared. It's funny, the Bible talks about 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, it says, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Do you realize in America, we have had our conscience seared? And I can say that without any hesitation, because there's most of you in this room, you can remember when a film called Gone with the Wind came out, right? And the scandal, because it had one cuss word. Just one. You realize we now allow cuss words in PG movies? We now have cuss words in commercials. And yet, more than 40 years ago, there was a movie, a Hollywood movie that came out, and it had a single cuss word, and it was scandalous. Okay, let me point out to you. You know how many movies were produced and released this past week that had cuss words in them? And you never heard a bleep from the news media, did you? You know why? Because we've had our conscience seared. I asked my my home congregation, Southern Hills in in Franklin, to write two words and, and put it on their bathroom mirror, put it above their computer, Those two words, two Latin words, are corum deo. And the reason that I asked them to do that was because those two words translate as in the face or the essence of God. And I pointed out to them, we should be doing everything corum deo, in the essence of God, in the face of God. Because ultimately, God sees everything. Psalm 101, take a look. It says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. Any of you older folks in the room who are looking for something that you could do, let me encourage you, take that portion of this text, maybe put it in calligraphy, put it in a fancy font on your computer, print a copy for every member in this congregation, ask them to put it above their computer above their television set, I will put nothing wicked before my eyes. I will hate the work of those who fall away. So the first area was media. I told you I was going to spend the longest time there. What about music? Does music affect us? There are times where we can sing a cappella music and it will quite literally raise the hairs on your arm. I don't know if you guys sing The Greatest Command here. Yes, no, maybe. I tell you what, you, you get all four of those parts coming in, and it, it's moving. But just as good songs, good lyrics can move you, so can bad stuff, right? So ask yourself, when you're driving down the road and you're listening to something, 
Are you being a light? Listen to what Paul said, Ephesians chapter 5, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Don't be listening to that rubbish. Rather expose it, point it out to others. Hey, you don't need to be listening to that. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So the second area is music. What about stuff? Can we be worldly with our stuff? You realize 15 years ago, if you wanted to make money, there was an industry you could invest in. You would have doubled your money very quickly. Know what that was? Storage container businesses. These places where you you rent a, a storage. Because after all, we were filling up our houses. We didn't have enough room for our stuff. So what people do? They rented this storage unit. And they went out and bought more what? Stuff. Coveting has been defined as desiring stuff too much or desiring too much stuff. Materialism is what happens when coveting has cash. I mentioned that everybody in this room has something. And Satan knows exactly what it is. You are that donkey, and Satan is the one riding you, and he's enticing you. And for some of you in this room, it may be a Harley Davidson. Some of you, it may be a green tractor. Some of you, it may be a certain brand purse or a a certain type of shoes. I'll be honest, if Satan dangled shoes in front of me, I would laugh at him. If Satan dangled shoes in front of my wife, I would have to pull her back. Luke chapter 16, verse 13, No servant can serve two masters. For they hate the one and love the other, or else they be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What's he saying? You can't have it both ways. You can't have a foot on both sides of the fence, folks. And if you came in here tonight with one side in the world, one side in the church, let me encourage you, over the next seven days of your life, Figure out what you need to do to get both of your feet into the church. To get both of your feet back at the cross. The last area that I point out, what about our our dress? What about modesty? And let me point out to you, I think modesty is more than just clothing. It's actually kind of an attitude. It is the way that we come across but it can also affect our worship, can it? I've had at least one or two folks, men, older men, tell me, I don't wait on the Lord's table anymore because when I I used to pass those plates, I was seeing way too much flesh. And I can't get my mind right when I see that. Now, let me point out to you, I know it goes both ways, right? I'm going to read to you this evening a little portion of something I wrote several months ago. It's called Dangerous Curves Ahead. I want you, you can find it online if you want to read the whole thing, but here's what, I want you 
to imagine the scenario. Let me set it up for you. Somebody in their 60s, maybe 70s, pulls into the parking lot on a Sunday morning, and all that man has on his mind is worshiping his Creator. And right about the time he's getting out of his car, a young lady walks right by his car in the parking lot wearing something about two sizes too tight and two sizes too short. Take a look. The young lady had no idea that on this particular day she would cause a similar internal battle in over 25 males, aged 11 to 87, all of whom had gathered to worship and honor God. She never realized that some of the men in the congregation had purposefully selected a pew or angled themselves with a clear line of sight to her backside. Or did she? She didn't realize that two or three of the men sitting behind her would later go home and feed their porn addiction while substituting mental images of her for the actress on the screen. Did she have any inkling that she was being devoured in the minds of men who were supposed to be worshiping God? Did she care? Folks, as you think about worldliness, as you think about what is grabbing your attention Ask yourself, what, what do your eyes chase? What does your heart truly long for? Because ultimately, if we're going to beat this thing, we got to do exactly what Paul told us to do. And that is get our mind and our eyes out of the world and think on good things. He said, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, there's anything. If there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, he says, think on these things. You want to make sure that your home does not become an enemy of God? Here's what you got to do. You've got to take your children, train them up in his word, and make sure on a regular basis that they are focusing on that cross. That they realize that without that gift on the cross that they are lost sinner. And you got to remind them what put him on that cross. I noticed today as I was pulling in, your word for the day was repent. Some of y'all didn't see that, did you? It is my hope and my prayer that this year, we talking about his family, We'll repent of worldliness. We'll bail out our boats. And we'll focus more on the cross and on Jesus Christ. Because folks, your home, one of the purposes should be training up children to return them back to God. Making them an enemy of God is not going to get it done. Again, I don't like that clock. We're going to deal with it. I've got a gun out in the car. I just take it out. Next week, we're going to talk about meekness. We're going to look at some of the Beatitudes. Let me encourage you. Be right back here. Bring somebody with you. Appreciate very, very much everybody's attention, attendance this evening. Let me encourage you to look for ways in the coming seven days to have a conversation with somebody about Jesus Christ because that's what it's all about.